Good morning, everybody. Good morning, guys. It's good to see you guys. I'm a little tired this morning, but I am excited to be here. I love getting to see all of your, your wonderful faces. Um, my name is Levi, and I serve here as the student pastor. And uh, we've been going through uh, the book of First Peter for the past almost three months. It's been really awesome. And uh, today we're, we're finishing it up, the last chapter. It's going to be good. Uh, First Peter, uh, for those of you who uh, maybe uh, haven't been here or missed some weeks or whatever, is a circular letter from Peter and was written to multiple church communities made up of primarily non-Jewish Christians located in modern-day Turkey who were facing harassment from the Greco-Roman world because of their choosing to identify with Jesus. So circular letter it was passed around between all these churches and read out loud. Peter writes to these Gentile Christians to remind them of their identity as members of God's family and that because of his identity, there will be suffering in this foreign world. However, as you suffer for what is good, you can look forward to, with living hope, to the imperishable inheritance that awaits. Peter is often called the apostle of hope, And this theme of living hope has been consistent throughout his entire letter, and it continues on into this final chapter. And uh, we're just going to go ahead and dive in. There's so much. I was talking to Jacob this morning about this. There's so much in this passage, and so we're just going to dive into God's word, and we're going to we're going to start. So if you guys could turn to First Peter chapter five, um, uh, we're going to go through the whole thing. I'm going to read for us. If you do not have a copy of God's word, uh, we'll have it behind me. If you don't have a copy, just in general, we should have some at back at the Connect Point. Grab a copy on your way out. We want you to have one. All right, First Peter chapter 5, let's do it. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, Strengthen and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this be, uh, or excuse me, that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your love, for your grace, for the gifts you give us, for the privileges that we have to dive into your word together as a family. Give us open minds and open hearts to receive your word 
We love you so much. It's because you loved us first. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Uh, before we start combing through, I wanted to, to take a quick poll. And this isn't, this isn't a scary question, so you'd have to be like, oh gosh, should I raise my hand? Raise your hand if you've ever, in life, uh, been a babysitter, been hired to be a babysitter, even if it's just with siblings. Raise your hand if you've ever... So, yeah, m- most everyone. Yeah, same. Like, I, I usually will say, like, my first, the closest thing to, like, a first real job I had, like, like pre-high school was being a babysitter. Like, my, the neighborhood we grew up in, my family grew up in, um, everybody kind of had their, you know, you, you have your go-to babysitter if you're a parent. And if that, for some reason, that babysitter couldn't come, Levi was the guy. I'd be like, oh, just call, just call Levi. He'll do it for like real cheap. Like, oh yeah, it's like I was always the backup, which was, which I loved it. I really enjoyed. It. They're like, will you babysit my kids? I'd be like, yeah. And when you're babysitting, by far the greatest asset that you're given, in my opinion, is that list of like important information that every parent leaves. It's either uh, written on like some sort of paper and left on the counter, or it's put on the fridge or whatever. And that list usually includes stuff like bedtimes and and medication information, food allergies, emergency numbers, stuff like that. But the single most important piece of information, I think, on that piece of paper are like the the house rules that are important enough for like the parents to mention. Like these are house rules. I don't know why, but every child at some point in their life will say that magic phrase, yeah, but mom and dad say it's okay. Okay. Yeah, but mom and dad said it's fine. It's fine. Mom and dad says it's okay, so I can do this. I don't know what it is. I don't know why. But every single child at some point will say, no, 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 mom, mom and dad said I could throw water balloons in the house. They're, they're okay with it. It's fine. Back when my brother and I were really little, like, like single digits, like uh, I can't even remember how old we were, but when we were really little, my, my poor aunt uh, was babysitting us, and we used that same phrase to essentially justify taking just about every spice out of the spice cabinet and dumping it into the sink to make like a concoction of some kind. And I look back on that like, and I, and I cringe a little bit because I know how expensive vanilla extract it can be. And I was just dumping this sucker and I got in so much trouble. And it was like, and I say that, I, I, I tell that story for two reasons. One, like, I'm not a parent, but if you are a parent and you, are, like, have kids where you're like, oh, no, I'm raising psychos, there's always hope. If there is hope for me, there is hope for your children. I was also a psycho kid at times, so you guys are, you guys are doing a good job. The second thing, Peter, in some ways, begins the final chapter of his letter by reading this coveted, this coveted parent's note. Like the first five verses of his this final chapter show him speaking to both elders and youngers of a church, and it kind of feels like this, this parent note a little bit. Verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a, as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter begins by addressing the elders of the church that he's writing to, or the churches, the multiple churches he's writing to. We see that elders are kind of like babysitters. They're caring for the youngers of the church. Peter refers to himself as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, a partaker of the glory to be revealed. Peter is also a babysitter and is calling the elders of these churches to a standard he too is called to as he encourages them to live in the way that they were called. 
And in the first, uh, or I should say verses two through four, Peter is specifically talking to elders and what elders are called to do as they hold their office. Verse two and three. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. Elders are called to be shepherds of God's people. And when you are a shepherd caring for God's people, Peter lays out what that should look like. Number one, it should, you should do it willingly and not because you're forced. Peter is saying that power is often desired in unhealthy ways, and that can also be present within the church. Peter's saying that eldership isn't something people should be pressured into, but should be out of a willingness to serve. The role of an elder is to lead as God would have you lead in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. This means, number two, when you're shepherding, you're not, going to, you're not doing it in order to get something out of it, but with eagerness. Elders shouldn't serve just to get something out of it, but because they want to serve God and his people. And therefore, number three, when you are, uh, when you are a shepherd, don't domineer. Lead by example. That word domineer in the Greek, it's a verb, and it can also be translated as to, to overpower, to master, to exercise lordship over. People can often desire power so that they can, they can mold a structure in their own image the way they believe is best. The elder's role is not to command and to, and to, to control it's to lead by example and to serve. Through the elder's, the elder's example, we learn what it looks like to lead others well. A shepherd is called to lead by example and to guide the flock in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears, you shall receive the unfading crown of glory. That image of, of an unfading crown was an image that uh, most people in the Greco-Roman world would have recognized. Uh, in the first century, uh, a wreath of, of, of leaves was given and placed on somebody's head if they had won some sort of athletic event, like the Olympics. They used to do that all the time at the Olympics. And they would put uh, a golden kind of crown, golden leaves on somebody's head if they had done something that was beneficial to society in some way, sometimes in regards to war and battle and things like that. Peter's reflecting his own words in chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, when he talks about how flesh is like grass. This world will fade, but our victory in Jesus will not. Elders have a lot of responsibility and in turn are held to an incredibly high standard. If you lead the way God has called us, you will receive an unfading crown of glory to you, given to you by the chief shepherd, which is Jesus. Verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Without going into this whole kind of word study deal, that word younger is meant to reflect uh, the word elder in this uh, passage. So when Peter is talking about those who are younger in this context... He means those who are not elders in the church. So if you're not an elder, you're younger. 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 You know, that's how it works. So 
the elders have a lot of responsibility. And God has called them to that responsibility so they will receive the unfading crown. Peter also adds this quotation in, uh, or I should say, from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. This call for humility continues into the next verses and brings home how Peter says these churches are called to live. Your status and standing is not determined by, by measurements of this world, but by Jesus. Verse 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Christians in the Greco-Roman world had a lot they could lose because of their faith in Jesus. Their status, their respect, their standing in the family, their friends, their livelihood, their very lives were all at stake. Peter calls these Christians in humility to cast their anxiety upon the Lord. Now, these verses are incredibly freeing, uh, but they're also often misused. These verses have often been used to encourage people to lay their anxieties at Jesus' feet in order that the anxieties will go away. I'm not sure... uh, I'm sure many of you know this verse. Many of you may have even memorized this verse growing up. Philippians 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And if you're like me, you read that and you say... Well, shoot, I, I feel like I'm anxious about everything, or at least most things, a worry, a concern. Maybe when I get holier, maybe when I'm, I'm just, when I, when I have it all figured out, then anxiety will just kind of like not exist anymore. Once I figure it all out and I'm holy, then it'll, then it'll all make sense. First of all, saying that you can throw off anxiety kind of on this whim and no longer be anxious is like saying that you can scoop a cup of water out of the ocean and you will just immediately stop drowning. If you just keep working enough, you'll just stop drowning. It doesn't work that way under human power. Secondly, I don't think we're understanding Peter or or Paul for that matter in this context. Grammatically speaking, The call in verse 7 to cast your anxieties is tied to the call to humble yourself in verse 6. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7 in Greek is all one sentence. It's not humble yourselves, period, cast your anxieties, period. It's all one thought. Humble yourselves, and part of that humbling includes casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter expresses something similar in 1 Peter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter is saying that when you experience trials, you need to trust God. And the reason for that trust is crucial for a couple reasons. Number one, because God has ultimate authority and everything that happens in this world is under his control. And two, because trials immediately make us want to question the person in charge. Something goes wrong, your immediate thought is to question the person who is in control of the situation that's going wrong. When you do a trust fall and a person drops you, you don't trust them anymore. 
That's, kind of, that's how it works. Or at least your trust in them is super duper rocky. Peter's saying that in life, when you feel like you've been dropped during a trust fall by God, it isn't actually a drop. God is still in control and he cares for you. You can trust your soul to your creator. We need to move away from this, this, this theology, this idea that says that if you pray hard enough, every problem in this life will just go away. We'll just, if, you, if you ask, everything will just go away. God is not a tool that we use to make our lives a little bit easier. We aren't casting our, uh, uh, we aren't casting our anxieties on God just so our anxieties will go away. It's much more than that. My wife, Rachel, and I, we do date night on Tuesdays. And uh, sometimes on date nights, we'll do like a trivia night. We'll go out to like some restaurant or whatever, and we'll do trivia. And if you, uh, you don't even have to have been with Rachel to trivia. If you know Rachel, you know that she is like a book master. And if there's ever a question that has anything pertaining to something, some story that's been written on paper at some point in history... I would rather have her as my lifeline than like J.R.R. Tolkien himself. Like she is so good at what she does. And yet, I still have the gall whenever a question is asked and she goes, oh, it's this. I read it the other day. It's this. I still have the gall to say, yeah, but are you sure? Yeah, but are you, are you sure? Which is ridiculous on so many levels but if you multiply that example by like forever, we're getting closer to this like godlike scale of what we're talking about here. God is the creator of the cosmos. <laughs> Celestial bodies move because he commands them to move. That is our God, not like kind of powerful, all powerful. And when life happens and every anxious bone in my body wants to have control and to fix it and wonder why God isn't doing it better, a.k.a. doing it the way that I would have done it, Peter reminds us that we don't have the full picture in view. When finite beings, limited finite beings, humble themselves to an infinite God some sort of anxiety will often be present in those finite beings. As a Christian, humility is enduring trials in this life and putting our trust in the Lord, knowing we serve a God that is not only in complete control, but genuinely cares. Verse 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. When a prowling lion is roaming the land, neither the shepherd nor the sheep are just kind of sitting idly by. Now, Peter's been talking a lot about persecution in this letter, but this is the first time in this letter, letter that he specifically brings up the spiritual side of persecution, and it's super cool how he does it even how he writes it down. Peter's using two common titles that the enemy of God usually has. He says the devil, which is Greek for slander. That's a common name for this enemy. And the adversary, which is the name used in the Hebrew all the time. In Hebrew, the adversary is the Satan. It's Satan. 
So he's saying the advers- your adversary, the devil, which is this cool, like, it's this cool kind of pointing back to be like, Satan, the devil, the adversary, the enemy of God, super cool. Peter's imagery of a fierce animal used to describe the adversary is a reflection of books like uh, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation when they are describing worldly systems distorted by the spiritual enemy and distorted by sin. Paul echoes this in Ephesians 6 verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As we walk through life, we need to remember who the real enemy is. The adversary is real. The devil is real. Dark spiritual beings are real. And they want to devour you. They want to devour us. Our enemy isn't other people, but the spiritual powers and authorities behind the scenes that move against and distort everything God says is good, everything in sin. We must be firm in our faith as we resist the adversary. And as we do, we can know that we don't suffer alone. Our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ suffer along with us as they too stand with King Jesus. Verse 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has established you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In light of eternity, our suffering is temporary. If you are a Christian, if you follow Jesus, there is always an opportunity for you to suffer. But when Jesus comes and makes all things new, Peter gives us this crescendo of words to describe what Christ will do to us in eternal glory. He will restore, he will confirm, he will strengthen, and he will establish. And Peter, then Peter ends in verse 11 with this very bold uh, doxology. To him be dominion forever and ever, amen. Not Rome, not the United States, but King Jesus is the one who rules. King Jesus is the one who has dominion forever and ever and ever. That's bold. That's a bold thing to say, especially in this letter that is traveling all throughout this empire. And to say something like Rome does not have authority was a death sentence. That's bold. And I think that boldness echoes even in today. That is bold to say, Jesus has dominion. Christ has dominion. It's awesome. All right, last three verses, verse 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that, that, that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The last three verses of Peter are the closing statements of this letter. And he mentions three different people. He mentions Silvanus, she who is in Rome, and Mark. So I'm going to start with Silvanus. Silvanus, which uh, I believe is the Roman version of the Greek Silas, 
That's, that's the most likely person that is. And you might know Silas because he was a, com- a companion of Paul and a lot of the other disciples. And uh, if you, in Acts chapter 16, is probably one of his more famous stories where he's like singing hymns and rocking out in a prison with Paul. And there's like a big earthquake. It's a really cool story. Uh, but this is most likely him. Peter says, depending on your translation, that, that either by or through Silvanus, I have written briefly to you. There are basically two schools of thought around Silvanus's role. Um, he was either the guy that delivered the letter, or he was the scribe that uh, wrote for Peter. So as Peter kind of talked about what he was writing, they would write down what he was saying. In Acts chapter 15, uh, 15, verses 22 through 23, Silas was chosen to deliver a letter on behalf of the Council of Jerusalem. So he does have courier experience. And at the same time, Christ, uh, Christian scholars agree that the Greek of 1 Peter is like incredibly well-written and in a very smooth way to speak Greek. Could a Galilean fisherman have written that, later, uh, that letter? Absolutely. Like, God has done way more impressive things through way less impressive people. Like, yes, that is very possible. Um, but he may have had help at the same time. Personally, I tend to think that Silvanus helped with both. I think that he helped write the letter and he helped deliver it. But either way, um, both have an argument. He helped with the letter is kind of what we're, we're getting at. Now, who is the, the, the she who is in Rome? The person, or excuse me, not in Rome, spoiler alert, she who is in Babylon. Uh, most modern Christians, uh, Christian scholars, I should say, agree that she is referring to uh, the church. Uh, Earlier in verse 9, Peter spoke about a a brotherhood who will experience suffering. That word brotherhood is a feminine word in Greek, uh, and it very well could be what the word she is referring to. So she is all the brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, And the mentioning of Babylon, like I already said, uh, some Old Testament prophets uh, would use the kingdom of Babylon kind of like an archetype for whatever oppressive nation was in power at the time. Um, and in the first century, uh, Christian's version of Babylon was Rome. Uh, so she who is in Babylon is a greeting from the Christian communities being built in the heart of the Roman Empire. And last, we have Mark. Mark is most likely referring to John Mark. Uh, he's cousins with Barnabas. He's mentioned multiple times in the book of Acts, and he's traditionally credited with being the author of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, tradition also holds that Mark and Peter were apparently very close. And so Peter referring to him as a son, even though they weren't related in that way, he wasn't literally Peter's son, uh, is still appropriate. It's, it's a, a term of endearment, so that's to be expected. And that's how Peter ends his letter. And bef- before we close, I wanted to... Um, I wanted to sit with a couple things um, in this passage and just kind of in general over First Peter. Um, uh, in our student ministry, uh, FSM, Fellowship Student Ministry, we asked the question at the end of a message uh, called, we, we just asked the question, so what? Just, and just say, so what? I love that question a lot. I heard that question a lot growing up. And it was essentially getting to the meat of, 
okay, we've read through God's word. We know it's important. Here's all this stuff I've received. So what? For three months, we've been saying that since we have a living hope in Jesus, we can faithfully live in a foreign world. Peter is reminding the fellow believers that while we are in a foreign land, we will experience suffering, but in that suffering, we have hope. So what? Why do we have hope as exiles? And here's the so what. So so what? We have hope. You know, what's the point? Jesus won. Jesus won the battle. Not he, he could win or he most likely will win. Jesus has victory. Like right now, Jesus won. Victory belongs to Jesus. Sin and death have zero claim on his sheep. If you are a child of God, sin and death, they can't, like the punishments of sin is removed. You've been freed through Christ's victory. We serve the God of the universe, the one who allows our hearts to pump, our lungs to breathe, our muscles to move. We serve the God that holds atoms together, like molecules pushed together by God's hand. I was just like listing things that I was just baffled by this week, like waterfalls were God's idea. Like, he just thought of that. It was like, waterfalls. And they're like, that gorgeous thing, it was his idea. Every terrifying thing in the ocean, God made his idea. It's awesome. Psalm 139, verse 16, has always blown me away, this verse. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God is not sitting in heaven wondering what might happen. He not only knows what will happen, he wrote it down. He created it. He said, this is what his days will be. Levi Scott's days will look like this, and it will happen exactly the way I planned it. He wrote it down. God is not subject to time and space. Time and space bow to God. They were his idea. That's the God we serve. This is not a, I hope he can rescue me. This is a, if he chooses to rescue me, everything answers to him. Everything. Our days are written. We serve a God that has dominion over both our greatest moments, measured by me, and our worst moments, measured by me. He is Lord over all, over all. Every, everything. And he calls us his kids. We're his children. He gives us the time of day. He spoke light into being and he gives us the time of day. I hope I never get over that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna end with this kind of uh, I was trying to think how to end the study of 1 Peter, and I, I'm going to end with this paraphrase. Um, this is in my own words, and if you haven't listened to all the sermons, go back and, like in detail. Go back and listen to the sermons. It's, you know, they're, they're great. But I'm, I'm 
in like three sentences, I'm going to try and summarize all of 1 Peter, like oversimplification, but hopefully this helps. Followers of Jesus, we have living hope in the midst of our suffering because we serve the king of the universe who will return to make all things right. We are part of God's family. He loves you more than you will ever know. And in your humble suffering, as you await your inheritance, you have the opportunity to show the people of this world how amazing God's love truly is. Amen. Amen. We are his children. I really wanted to, like, there's always a verse somewhere in the passage, if I'm called to, to teach it. And there's always one verse where I'm like, oh, I wish we could stay on this just the, the entire time. And when it talks about anxiety and our fear and how in humility we have to cast that on the Lord, at least for me, when I really focus in and remember not only who God is, but what he has done and how he has had consistent character for all of eternity and how we have unbelievable biblical evidence to show that he adores his children and we are his children. Those moments where I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. I go, I serve the God who's not waiting to see if, oh, hopefully Levi can cross the finish line. It's Jesus already crossed the finish line. Levi, you're covered. It's okay. What you carry, give it to me. I want to carry it for you. You don't have to worry. I love you. The same God that allows the sun to keep burning loves you, loves me. And I'm so grateful for First Peter is awesome. Do you guys pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it holds. Thank you for your love, God. Sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's hard to read your word and to look at things like cast your anxieties on you. And it's just hard. That's so much harder to do than we think. Lord, I pray that we remember the truth that we read in 1 Peter, God, that you are sovereign, that you are king, that this suffering does not catch you off guard, that there's a purpose behind it, and that in that suffering we have this amazing opportunity to show other people what it looks like to know that we are loved by the creator of the universe. Thank you for your son. Thank you for allowing us to have a living hope as exiles in a foreign world. We love you because you love us first. In your name I pray, amen.